Tavis Smiley, and I'm delighted to have you tuned into our program in this hour. Uh, in this hour, two great conversations. On the back side of this hour, we'll be joined by Leah Daughtry, who is the former CEO of the Democratic National Convention. Uh, and um, she's now Bishop Leah Daughtry, and she's one of the many persons who have fixed her signature to this full-page ad that many of you saw in the New York Times days ago calling for a ceasefire. Over 300 uh, clergy all across the nation, from California to the Carolinas, uh, who, uh, again, put their signature on this four-page ad and and um, uh, demanded uh, a ceasefire. So we'll talk to Leah Daughtry, Bishop Leah Daughtry, on the backside of this hour about why um, she uh, fixed her signature. And, again, because she uh, was a top official at the Democratic uh, Party. I've known Leah for years, Bishop Daughtry for years. Um, look forward to getting her take on a number of things uh, about church and state and black church activism. Again, she's been on both sides, been on the inside running the Democratic Party, and she also pastors a church. So we'll talk about that with uh, Bishop Leah Daughtry on the backside of this hour. We commenced this hour, though, with Pastor Michael McBride. Uh, he is the one who did the, the heavy lifting, did the, the curating, if you will, of getting this ad pulled together and getting all these uh, clergy uh, uh uh, to affix uh, their signature to this ad demanding a ceasefire. Pastor Michael McBride, good to have you on Tavis Smiley. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Brother Tavis. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well, and I'm um, delighted, sir, to, to be in dialogue mm-hmm. with you for these few moments. Let me just uh, jump right in and make the most of the few minutes that we have here. I want to talk broadly about black church activism as we move through these 30 minutes, but let me start with the obvious question. Um, whose idea was it for this full-page ad? Uh, give me some backstory about how this thing came to be. Well, uh, a number of us black church leaders across the country uh, exist in lots of different spaces. Uh, we have text threads, we have email trees, we have Zoom meeting rooms we meet in regularly. Certainly, uh, um, after the October 7th massacre by Hamas in Israel, uh, we all began to have our own conversations about where we stood and the immediate aftermath of the humanitarian crisis as it unfolded. It really caused a number of us, Dr. Barbara Skinner-Williams, uh, who leads the African-American Clergy Council, Dr. Otis Moss III in Chicago, Bishop Leah Daughtry, Pastor Freddie Haynes, Jamal Bryant, a number of us, Isaac Carruthers. We all began to just talk about what prophetic role should we play in speaking out, given the uh, number of children who were being killed. And we began to discern and think, and uh, collectively we thought of First of all, having a meeting with the White House, uh, with the CBC, and from those conversations, this ad um, or this signature letter began to take form, which eventually led to this ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I heard you correctly, uh, let, me, let me just back up and make sure I did. Were there conversations with the White House prior to this ad being uh, taken out in the New York Times? Yes, yes, yes. There, there was a, a, a conversation that took place with uh, a number mm-hmm. of uh, folks at the White House, again, expressing our concern about the humanitarian crisis as it was unfolding and being reported to us. Uh, Several thousand children had been killed by the time we had our conversation with the White House. I think about Mm -hmm. 7,000 civilians had been killed. And so for us, uh, we were concerned about the rhetoric uh, coming from the White House and uh, the loss of life. And we wanted to go on record to say there has to be a better way. We all know, I've discussed it many times on this program, Pastor McBride, we know that the, 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 the Biden administration, the White House, Secretary of State's office, Antony Blinken and others have been very clear up to this point to not call for a ceasefire. We saw a story in the Washington Post, uh, you no doubt saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, leaked, uh, a leaked memo, a leaked document got to the Washington Post that was instructing all members 
members of the Biden administration uh, at this level to not use the phrase ceasefire. We're not calling for a ceasefire yet, said the memo. We're not we're not asking for de-escalation. That's not what we're doing. That was weeks ago, and they still haven't gotten around to using the term ceasefire or de-escalation. So I'm curious uh, to the extent you can share um, what kind of pushback uh, were you getting from the White House when you were letting them know that you all were thinking about calling for a ceasefire, calling for de-escalation, because clearly that ain't the language they wanted to use then or, frankly, even now. Well, without, you know, disclosing too many sure, details sure, of sure, our sure. meeting, I will say we were very clear from and in our conversation with the White House and certainly even with some of the CPC members who attended our conversation that we have a moral call, a conscience that was compelling us to join in not just uh, the calls for ceasefire from uh, activists and, and world nations, right? Mm-hmm. But from we who are people of faith, uh, we who actually know Palestinian and Jewish and Israeli and Arab and Christian and Muslim and people of no faith, mm-hmm. all caught up in this conflict, being disproportionately injured, harmed, and terrorized by the level of devastation, the cutting off of electricity, the cutting off of food, the cutting off of water, We have seen churches, hospitals, schools bombed. The third oldest church in the history of the world, Christian church, was bombed within the Gaza Strip. There, for us, required a particular voice where we had to go on record, not just Mm -hmm. with the administration, but with the world, that we believe in 2023 there must be a a, a way forward that does not lead to the indiscriminate killing of so many innocents, and not just in this conflict, but many other crises across the world. I want to talk more about that prophetic role when we come forward. Delighted to have Pastor Michael McBride right now on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. Pastor Michael McBride is our guest uh, in uh, this first half hour, uh, and we're talking about this full-page ad of the New York Times uh, that we saw days ago, um, signed by over 300 uh, clergy uh, from California to the Carolinas, calling for a ceasefire. You heard Pastor McBride say moments ago they had conversations with members of the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. They had conversations with the White House. Um, expressing themselves, and for whatever reason, after those conversations, they still felt the need to take out this full-page ad in the New York Times. So tell me how that part uh, came to be, Pastor McBride. Well, I think many of us found our conversations to be left wanting Mm. uh, in the sense that we felt there uh, needed to be a a larger moral cry out for for a ceasefire. And and again, it's important to say that our ceasefire is not just about the stopping of the killings uh, between Hamas and Israel, but it is also the releasing of hostages held uh, by Hamas. And some clergy even want to go as far as the release of those uh, Palestinians being held by some Israeli forces up in the West Bank and other parts of Israel. We wanted to ensure our ceasefire called for a a safe entry zone and humanitarian aid that meets the level of damage that has happened throughout uh, Gaza and certainly also a commitment to a peace process. We started out with several hundred uh, clergy names, but it has ballooned uh, to over 900 at the point of the publishing of the ad. So we literally have over 900 black faith leaders, black church leaders who signed on to this ad calling for a bilateral ceasefire uh, accompanying the demands that are also listed 
uh, in the ad itself. No, I'm glad you updated me on that. We saw what we saw in the paper. But to your point, that that list has grown even since then to over 900. So I'm glad uh, uh, we got the, the, the latest numbers on those who have uh, affixed their signatures uh, to this ad. Let me ask you, I don't have all 900 on this one on, on this one phone line. That'd be a, that'd be a real party line to have 900 people <laughs> in this conversation. Absolutely. But as the person who curated this, um, let me just ask you what your view is. Uh, we do not have uh, a ceasefire as yet. The Biden administration is uh, uh, since that ad is run, they still have not called for a ceasefire. As I said moments ago, they still have not asked uh, or called for de-escalation. But two things um, have happened um, since that ad uh, uh, ran. Number one, in no particular order, um, Israel is now um, pausing so many hours a day for uh, hostages to get out and perhaps some humanitarian aid to get in. Uh, I've opined about that publicly already, but I'm curious as to get your take on these pauses in lieu of uh, a a, a, a ceasefire. Uh, Let me start with that now. I'll follow up with something else in a moment. Well, uh, Dr. Barbara uh, Skinner-Williams, one of our co-conveners of this, went on record, and I agree with her, that we find this to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. Uh, We believe that this is uh, certainly the lowest of lowest bars that uh, does not uh, cease the hostilities that are, again, reaching to a humanitarian level. One of the Israeli officials today just put out that they are engaging in a second Nakba, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the forced removal the forced uh, ethnic cleansing of a region uh, as a part of their military response. Again, this conflict in the Middle East, particularly in Israel, Palestine, etc., is decades long. It cannot be fixed overnight. None of us are naive. But the idea that there is a displacement of millions of individuals who are not a part of Hamas being punished by the radical minority of those in this region that are obviously being funded by uh, nation states surrounding (laughs) uh, and in this region, we think this is not a prudent course forward, and we are concerned it will draw the United States and more of our military forces into an extended conflict when we've just gotten out of one for over 20 years that still did not displace the Taliban. And so we think this is a moral responsibility. We think it is a strategic blunder of sorts, and we do not feel our tax dollars should be spent uh, being pulled from poor and under-resourced folks, particularly black and brown folks in America, to now be bombing other poor and disenfranchised and displaced folks in the Palestinian uh, region. We think it is immoral, and we think a way forward must be forced by us who are here in the United States. Um, to your point now, how concerned are you and these other clergy about a wider war? Um, one reads this morning uh, that the that the U.S. military has once again um, uh, dropped some bombs in Syria. Um, so we're trying to uh, make sure that, uh, that uh, Iran and others uh, don't feel uh, too froggy and, and leap into this uh, controversy. So we, we dropped some bombs in Syria trying to stop something jumping off there. We know that Hezbollah on the northern border of Israel is now firing bombs, uh, firing missiles into uh, Israel uh, from the Lebanon side. So it would appear uh, that if we aren't careful here, this is going to be a much wider war. How concerned are you and your fellow clergy about that reality? 
we are very concerned it is actually demand three in our petition. I just want to underscore uh, that the ceasefire we called for held all of these things collectively together mm-hmm. as a reason why we must have a ceasefire. Uh, an extended conflict or war in the region that draws American forces into an extended conflict would then trigger all kinds of geopolitical conflicts that include Russia, that include China, that include neighboring states, uh, nation states like Iran and Qatar and all these different kinds of elements. And so for many of us, that has and was a part of our concern that we communicated uh, to the White House, to the CDC and to others as part of our reason why we felt we needed to come out mm-hmm. early. And we believe that it's important to resurrect a black church voice against war and against military conquest in the world. This is a part of Dr. King's legacy. Mm-hmm. We love Dr. King. We venerate Dr. King, but we still do not listen <laughs> to Dr. King. And uh, for us, many of us, uh, we find that to be unconscionable as moral leaders. Use the word immoral. Um in describing this conflict moments ago, immoral. What what are you calling specifically immoral? Uh, we find it immoral that any loss of civilian lives by any actor, mm-hmm. state or otherwise, requires our swift and vocal condemnation. We condemn the attacks on of Hamas who took the lives of innocent uh, individuals. We condemn the attacks of Israeli uh, forces who are right now taking, arresting, and persecuting the lives of individual Palestinian innocents. Uh, We condemn innocent life being taken under the auspices of war. To to describe the lives being lost as collateral damage is an immoral response from our faith perspective. Admittedly, our faith perspective may not make good politics, Mm -hmm. but we do believe it makes good morals good ethics. And we want to be a voice that is very clear to not just our politicians, but even to our own congregation members and to our own adherents of the faith. We must not allow the taking of innocent lives at a disproportionate massive rate to be uh, something that we are comfortable with as an act of aggression and war and retaliation. That is not what we believe is the way of Jesus. It is not the way of our best faith traditions, and we must inject that principle and ethic in a time of war, in a time of violence, in a time of imperialism and devastation. Let me go right at this, because um, you mentioned your congregations, of course. You mentioned, uh, obviously, that first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus, uh, who uh, mm-hmm. who many of us follow. Uh, so let me go right at this. And this is not something that is uh, obviously unfamiliar to you or unfamiliar to black people. Uh, who have been churched their entire lives. So in our uh, Christian ethos, uh, our Christology uh, teaches us, uh, and many people have had this conversation time and time again, that the, that the Jews are God's chosen people uh, and that we should never find ourselves in any situation where we are not on the side of the Jews, on the side of Israel. Uh, there are many people who believe that based on their biblical teachings. I have had these conversations ad infinitum, ad nauseum over the course of my life, certainly over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, again, I'm not on unfamiliar terrain where you are concerned. When one looks at this letter and looks at the names of these clergy, many of whom I know who signed on to this, they are pastoring uh, Christian churches, again, who believe in that edict that the Jews are God's chosen people and that we should never find ourselves in any situation where we are taking uh, a side against God's chosen people. 
To those persons, you say what? Well, to those persons, I would say that uh, the Scripture says God has no partiality. <laughs> um, the Scriptures, the same Scriptures that we would deduce uh, such interpretation, which I would not subscribe to personally, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that God loves the world. God loves the land of the world. God loves the people of the world. God has no love for nation states or empires in whatever name you call them. At every era in this in this world's history, people and land have outlasted nation states. And so what I would say to all of those who are operating from a theological framing that I would believe is inadequate to respond to the complexity of our current life is to remind yourself that God's love is for everyone, and that we have a responsibility as stewards of creation to ensure that there is peace, that there is life, that there is justice, that there is inclusion, and that we ought to do so at every moment we can without the imposition of violence. And so I do believe, as many of us on this uh, letter believe we have different various views about Israel uh, and its security and and the length and depth and extent to which that should happen. Mm-hmm. None of us want Israeli citizens to be vulnerable or to be massacred. None of us want Palestinian citizens to be vulnerable or ma- massacred. It is then at this meeting point, at this starting point, must all of our theological, political, and even dare I say, relational networks meet. How do we ensure? the most possible peace without violence and war, and And our theological interpretations ought to inform that for everyone, not just for a chosen few. I received that. Uh, And how do you respond to those who say that since we're talking about theology and we're talking about a letter that was signed by many clergy, many of them who are Christian preachers, uh, how do you respond to those who, again, would go back to to the Bible they read to say that that land does, in fact, belong to Israel? It belongs to the Jews. I would say that they 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 could believe that all they want. I would say that is an incorrect interpretation of that passage of scripture. Uh, I would say that uh, we do not we do not determine nation state boundaries by reading scripture. <laughs> um, that uh, the people described in the biblical text are very different than the nation that was established in 1948 by the United Nations Declaration. And so I think this is a moment where all of us must be open to having some uh, a deeper explanation and exploration of these texts, of these ideas, of these assumptions. Uh, I do believe it's important to always remember that there are and have always been uh, Jewish and Palestinian and Muslim and Christian and Arab and and people of faith and no faith and many other faiths living in the land uninterrupted uh, at times at peace, at times at conflict. Uh, so there is, I think, a history that we in the black church must very much interrogate and move away from the fundamentalism of right-wing Christian eschatological end-time theology that too much has poisoned our minds and uh, given us a false lens of how to interpret current events, particularly in the Middle East. In the two minutes I have left here, talk to me more broadly um, about um, the way you see black church activism uh, being ignited, not just by this crisis, but as we head into 2024, uh, the presidential election cycle. Well, I certainly think that there is a, a elevated consciousness, not just in the conflict in uh, Israel, Gaza, but there is a, a escalated consciousness in the Congo, in Sudan, 
uh, in many places across the world where we are finding either our tax dollars or our foreign policy, including Yemen, uh, to have a disproportionate impact on the world and on the way in which we exist in a peaceful coexistence. As we head into 2024, I do believe that this issue, along with many other issues, bread and butter issues that are about the economy, that are about our safety, that are about our human and civil rights, will continue to be at the front and center of how people will discern their vote, not just at the top of the ticket, but all the way down. I want to call out to all of us to ensure that we protect our own loved ones in the Congress who are being attacked by certain forces because of their vocal calls for ceasefire and a different foreign policy. We may not always agree, but black congressional members should not be attacked or be primaried by forces outside of our community Mm -hmm. because they disagree with their foreign policy. Imagine the kind of loss to the very limited black elected official constituency mm-hmm. uh, just because of foreign policy differences. So we believe that we're going to continue nope. to be fighting for those folks and loving those folks, but we're going to make sure our vote is tied to all of these issues, not just a particular loyalty to a party or an individual. Just in case you uh, are not familiar with what uh, Pastor McBride's talking about right now, let me do it very quickly here. There are a number of African-American members of Congress um, who see this foreign policy issue differently than many in the Jewish lobby. Uh, and there are some in the Jewish lobby who are primarying African-American members of Congress. They literally are supporting people to run against them because they don't agree. These, these black members of Congress don't agree uh, with the Israeli lobby, the Jewish lobby on some of these issues. And he's right about that. That is wrong. Uh, that ought not be tolerated to have you primary because you don't agree with them on foreign policy. Uh, I, I'm told by that. We'll talk more about it in the coming days. But that's what he's putting his finger on. And I'm glad he did. Pastor McBride, thanks for putting these clergy together. Good to have you on the program. We'll do it again somewhere down the road. Thank you, sir, for your time. Always better, Tavis. Bless you. Bless you. Bishop Leah Daughtry, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 We thank Pastor Michael McBride for that conversation, that spirited dialogue, and I um, am delighted now to welcome to this program my friend Leah Daltrey, uh, who I've known for for decades now. Um, uh, At one point, Leah Daltrey was the CEO of the Democratic National Convention, and that's a big deal um, to be the CEO of the Democratic National Convention. We know we're headed toward 2024, and these uh, major political conventions uh, will take place once again in uh, uh, these nominating uh, uh, festivities will be underway, and uh, if the polling is, is accurate, we expect that we're going to have a rematch uh, of uh, of the two combatants we saw last time. Democrats will renominate Joe Biden, and it appears that Republicans are going to renominate Donald Trump, and we'll be at it again. But uh, Leah Daughtry was the CEO of the Democrat, uh, Democratic National Convention, not once but twice, uh, and um, she uh, was preaching then. Her father in New York City is legendary. Uh, I know her and her father and her family, legendary uh, father uh, uh, she has. Uh, And now she is the Bishop Leah Daughtry. And I'm delighted to welcome her to this program. Bishop Leah Daughtry, how are you today? 
I'm fine, my brother. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted to be here and delighted to be in dialogue with you once again. Uh, let me just start by asking before I get into this into this full page ad. We just talked to Michael McBride that you affixed your signature to and talk about some politics and and uh, and the like. Um, t- take me back right quick to your being a major official inside the Democratic uh, Party and how you balanced being uh, a political operative while also being a minister of the gospel. Well, well. first of all, Tavis, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be uh, with you and with your audience. For me, um, you know, my engagement in the political, the electoral political sphere um, is an extension of my ministry, it's an extension of my calling, because I believe that the calling that is on my life and the work that I do in the ministry is about helping people to live the full and abundant life that God promised to them. And that means everything from clean air to clean water mm. to uh, good food to safe streets uh, to them being affirmed and safe in their bodies. And so the way that I work that out, besides preaching every Sunday and preaching to people and teaching and all of that, is also to be engaged in the systems that are present in this nation that help to ensure that people have exactly those things, clean air, clean water, safe streets, good schools, all of the, and that for me is to, it's an extension. Mm-hmm. As I don't see a, a dichotomy. I don't see a contradiction. It is one way to ensure that the will and the way of God is made real on earth for the people of God. Extension is your word. Others would be concerned about a separation of church and state. And to those persons, you say what? It, well, it, I'm not asking people, and I don't vote, um, and I don't ask you to vote on the basis of their faith. I believe our faith is not a, a doctrine that should be imposed on other people, but it is a guide for me. It is a value system. Like other people, you know, have values based on their mama or the grandmama or mm-hmm. the, what they learned on, on, on the porch and growing up. Um, and so I'm not necessarily interested in a politicians or an elected officials where they go to church uh, and how often they go to church, I'm more interested in the values that drive them. Mm. And in that sense, we all have values, and it's appropriate to understand what our uh, elected's values are, what's driving them, how they manage money, how they're going to spend our tax dollars. Those are values, values-driven decisions. And in that way, you know, your faith and your politics cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. So to that end, I'm just curious. I haven't had a chance to ask you this. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, and I'm just delighted to hear your voice again. Um, but uh, how then do you process, how, how, do you, how do you deal with these evangelical Christians, uh, those on the right, who have bent over backwards and 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 frankly twisted the scripture, uh, reading the same Bible you read, but they twist the scripture to support Donald Trump, no matter what he says, no matter what he does. So they're not they're not separating their faith uh, and 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 their politics either, but they got a different way of reading it than you do. Yeah, you know, it's it's a couple of challenges. One, they're taking scripture, just as you said, out of context and twisting it to mean whatever they want it to mean. But secondly, and I think what's most important, is that they're inconsistent in in the application of it. Mm -hmm. And so the things that they excuse Donald Trump for are the things that they nailed Bill Clinton to the cross for. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have a set of standards, and that's what your values are, that they ought to apply across the board. And, And their inability 
to consistently apply scripture, to consistently apply values, is the trouble that I have with them. We see it in their rhetoric around abortion, around women's health care decisions, because they are concerned about unborn children, but they're not concerned about born children. Mm -hmm. So they're not concerned about whether the child after it's born has clean air and clean food and clean water and their mama is safe and mama has health care. So their care stops at the birth. So in that sense, they're not really pro-life. They're really just Mm pro-birth. And so there's an inconsistency in their application of the scripture. And that is for me, the most problematic thing. I love that distinction. They may be pro-birth, but they are not pro-life. That's a good one. Uh, courtesy of Bishop Lee Daughtry. Uh, let me just jump ahead now watching my time. want to manage it here. Uh, let me ask a broad question first, and then we'll narrow it in the time I have left here, uh, Bishop Daughtry. And, and that is why you decided, um, to affix your signature to this full page ad in the New York times, along with hundreds of other clergy. There was about 300 at the time, 350, now over 900 people who signed on to this full page ad that was in the New York Times calling uh, on the Biden administration to uh, calling for a ceasefire. I've said it many times on this program, sometimes you got to fight with your friends. Uh, you got to fight with your friends sometimes. And Michael McBride made it clear that y'all talked to the CBC, y'all talked to the White House, and, and there was not satisfaction there. And so this full page ad uh, came forth in the New York Times. You put your signature on it. Tell me why. Well, you know, as you, as you referenced my father at the beginning of this. Um, yes, love your father, love your father, yes. I do, too. <laughs> uh, we have been involved in, this, in issues around uh, self-determination for the people of that region for decades. So this, for me, was a continuation of that, uh, of that work. And I wanted to sign, one, because it is a continuation, but secondly, because you cannot be a person of faith and claim to advance the values of God in terms of love and grace and justice and mercy and compassion and watch the daily bombing and the daily violence that is happening in that region on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so we were very careful to call for a bilateral Mm -hmm. ceasefire. Everybody put your guns down. We have to press for uh, uh, the justice of God in this place. We Children are dying every day. Children are not to be burying their mamas. And mamas are not to be burying their children. Children shouldn't be made orphaned by these, this violence that is happening now. So we need the violence to stop. And that's why it was important for me to sign my name and to recruit others to sign their names to say as people of God, as Christians, we are uh, committed to a peace process. We are committed to pursuing peace, to pursuing justice, to pursuing mercy, to pursuing God's grace in this situation. So we want the ceasefire, bilateral ceasefire. We want humanitarian assistance, food, water, fuel, electricity, health care needs. And we want our president to commit to a peace process before this escalates into a regional war that will take us into World War III. What you call bilateral, uh, Bibi Netanyahu would call a victory for Hamas. That is to say, if Israel puts down its weapons, if they stop um, their uh, continuing excursion um, uh, deeper into, into Gaza and into uh, the West Bank, uh, that would be a victory for Hamas. So again, uh, you call it bilateral. He would call it surrender. Want to get your temperature on that when we come forward talking with Bishop Leah Daughtry on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. 
Bishop Leah Daughtry, um, I uh, posed uh, this question a moment ago that I want to give you a chance to respond to now. Um, you um, uh, made it clear that this full-page ad in the New York Times that we all saw days ago uh, uh, that had your signature on it and hundreds of others uh, called for a bilateral ceasefire. I was talking to Michael McBride at the top of this hour. Uh, we know, sadly, even today, uh, sadly, my word, not, not yours perhaps, uh, but I think we agree on this, uh, that the Biden administration still is not using the word ceasefire. They still are not calling for de-escalation. So they have at the moment at least bought into this notion uh, that um, that uh, Bibi Netanyahu is right, that a ceasefire at this moment, a bilateral ceasefire, as you put it, at this moment would be a victory for Hamas. Now, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, did say just the other day that too many innocent Palestinians have died. But that's as far as he's gone, as you well know. Uh, they've not gotten to the phrase ceasefire or, or de-escalation. So, again, I ask uh, how you respond to Bibi Netanyahu, who would call your call for a bilateral ceasefire a victory for Hamas, a surrender to Hamas. Well, I think the, the point here is that everybody's shooting, everybody's got guns, everybody's got rockets, but if we ascribe to the old adage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, mm-hmm. everybody's blind and, and toothless. Yep. So, you know, I will never say that people who have been attacked do not have the right to defend themselves on both sides, Mm -hmm. because both sides feel uh, rightly or wrongly, and we can certainly have a whole argument about who owns the land, who's the rightful owner, and all of that. But the fact of the matter is what what Israel is now engaged in is a disproportionate response Mm -hmm. to to the attack, the heinous, unexcusable, uh, in my opinion, attack of October 7th, where innocent people were killed, hostages were taken, and you see in our statement, we call for the return of the hostages. Yes. Mm-hmm. But Israel's response has been disproportionate. They are now bombing hospitals, refugee camps, uh, you know, and people have no food, they have no water, they have no electricity, they have no fuel. It is disproportionate. And so everybody at this point needs to lay down their arms. Israel needs to be, uh, if, if they call themselves a democracy, they call themselves a leader, they need to take the lead and figure out a different way to a solution than having everybody be blind and toothless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've made this point before. Um, I, I once uh, interviewed Bibi Netanyahu and asked him um, whether he'd ever considered um, King's nonviolent philosophy. Uh, and the impact that might have. It fundamentally changed this country. He laughed at me, uh, Leah Daughtry, Bishop Daughtry. He laughed at me uh, and said to me, King didn't know Hamas Tavis. King didn't know Hezbollah. And I, you know me, I jumped all over him. Even though, even, uh, even, even though he was a head of state, I, I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> I jumped all over Bibi Netanyahu in that, uh, in that nationally televised conversation on PBS. How dare you say that Dr. King didn't know Hamas and Hezbollah as if the Klan, uh, I mean, uh, America was a terrorist. Uh, America was engaged in terrorism every day and lynchings and all the stuff that you and I know I ain't got to get into. And so he and I went at it for a while on PBS that particular night. Um, but, um, when you say find another way, uh, if you raise King and you raise Gandhi and you raise the notion of nonviolent, uh, resistance and nonviolent, uh, 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 civil response, you get laughed out the room these days. It, that, and that is true. And that is unfortunate. And that is, that gets to the dehumanization that is happening really across the world. As we look at Congo, as we look at Sudan, certainly as we look at the Palestinians, as we look at our own experience here in America, where we are deemed, these communities are deemed to be less than Mm -hmm. and are dehumanized and dismissed and demeaned and negated. And so therefore, these other powers feel that they have the 
the authority to treat us any old kind of way yeah. and to dismiss our concerns, and it's and it's not appropriate. And I want to go back to the first point you were making. I think that the Biden administration can do more, which mm-hmm. is why we met with the CBC, why we met with the White House. Their response to date has been unsatisfactory, and I want to see them do more. And I've said that said as much to them. We said it in a meeting with them, and I'm looking forward as Election Day is coming. Now, I'm not a one-issue voter. i got mm-hmm. a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. But on this particular one, I want to see them do better. Yep. When we come forward, we'll talk about doing better and we'll talk about uh, why it is. And I'm glad this letter was written. I'm glad it had all these signatures uh, on it. I'm glad that Bishop Leah Daughtry uh, and Michael McBride have been our guests in this hour. What I'm not glad about um, is that it takes something like this to really move the the, the spiritual, the religious, uh, the, 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 the clergy on the left. Uh, on the right, they do this stuff all the time. We were just talking about the rights of uh, just uh, embrace of. Uh, Donald Trump, no matter what he says or does, and, and, I, and I'm, al- I'm always curious as to why uh, the, evangel- the evangelicals on the right seem to be seem to be much more uh, politically engaged, much more socially active than the clergy on the left. We'll get uh, Bishop Leah Daughtry's take on that before we wrap this conversation. You're listening to Tavis Smiley from the Merck Park with love. love this love, is love. Tavis Smiley. Oh! He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Mr. Lee, doctor, I got about two minutes left here. Um, uh, it doesn't take much for the evangelicals on the on the right, the political right, uh, to get their backs up. They're always engaged. Uh, I, I was glad to see this full page out of the New York Times, but it does raise a question that many people have as to whether or not um, uh, the, 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 the left, uh, the, cause you're evangelicals too, evangelicals on the left, uh, progressives, um, whether or not they are going to be more politically, socially active from this point forward as we move through this 2024 election. You know, I think our engagement has been consistent over the years. There's an exhibit in the Birmingham Civil Rights Museum that says that during the movement when Dr. King was alive, of the 700 churches in Birmingham, only 60 were active in the movement. That's right. Only 60 of 700. So what you always have, and it's true through Scripture, is a remnant of people who understand what needs to be done. You have black churches. My pet peeve is that the churches who are moving who are pushing us forward, who are holding up a standard of justice and peace, often get overlooked in favor of the churches who are not doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So I want us to be more <laughs> engaged in lifting up the churches like Trinity with Otis Moss III, mm-hmm. like Cynthia Hale and Ray of Hope, like Gina Stewart and Christ Missionary, like Michael McBride, people whose churches are on the front line every day and who are doing the work. Those are the places there's always going to be a remnant. And we are doing all we can to maintain and to uphold the legacy that we have been given through the calling that is on our life, the calling that is on our church's life, and the work that we have been that has been passed down to us. Don't overlook us and think nothing's happening. We moving, we shaking. Well, you might not see it, mm-hmm. but we see letters like this who remind us that there is a remnant of churches, nine hundred plus who said, this is what we stand for. We need to see people's lives protected, made whole, and we resist the dehumanization of any people. Everybody knows that Joe Biden would not be president. He knows he says it all the time. He would not be president were it not for black people, particularly black women. Uh, And it's going to be a curious case of how long he will go ignoring black clergy, um, 900 and counting 
calling on uh, an immediate bilateral ceasefire. It ain't moved him yet. It has not moved Anthony Blinken. Uh, they still not calling for a ceasefire, still not calling for de-escalation. Uh, and um, I think in many respects, he's putting his reelection at risk, not just with black voters, but certainly with uh, with Arab voters and those who are just uh, disturbed by the way um, U.S. foreign policy is being engaged right now in the Middle East. I'll leave it there for the time being. Bishop Lee Daughtry, always an honor to be in dialogue with you. Thank you. I love you and all the best to you. Love you too, brother. Take, take good care. Take care. Our three of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.